Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the AlbumReview.net podcast. I'm Greg Potters. Thank you for listening and thank you for your interactions and feedback. Your feedback is much appreciated and it helps me to always improve. Today I'm going to spare you all from listening to just my fantastic voice. I've invited a very special guest to join me today. In this episode, I will be interviewing music author Brian O'Connor. By day, Brian is vice president of finance for a large hunger relief organization, and by night, he is an established music author. Brian joins me to discuss his most recent 2021 published book, Time Decorated, A History of Popular Music in 12 Playlists, and another book he wrote in 2019 titled For the Record, My 1,000 Favorite Albums from 1957 to 2017. Not only was I impressed with Brian's intelligence, but his music knowledge goes deep and spreads across many genres, so we're not going to just be discussing one type of music in this interview. I think you'll pick up on Brian's modesty as he classifies his knowledge level as basic, which I vehemently disagree with, and I think you will too. All right, before I get started, I want to remind you that you can listen to all of my podcast album reviews by going to albumreview.net and click on the podcast tab. They can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. You can also read well over 30 written reviews at albumreview.net and pick up some merchandise from your favorite bands, albums, sound systems, and you gotta check out the bookstore. Have you guys ever wanted to learn more about your favorite musician or band that you can't find on the internet? Well, go to albumreview.net and click on the store tab where you can grab a copy of different biographies and autobiographies from artists such as Eric Clapton, Motley Crue, Pink Floyd, Eddie Van Halen, Tom Petty, Metallica, Kinda Blue, The Making of Miles Davis's Masterpiece. And I'll also have both of Brian's books up there as well that you can pick them up. All right, well, without further ado, sit back and enjoy this interview with music author Brian O'Connor. Joining me today for this episode is music author Brian O'Connor. Brian has published two books directly related to music, and I am so pleased that he is here today to talk about both his new 2021 book, Time Decorated, A History of Popular Music in 12 Playlists, and his other, what I want to call brilliant, and I mean it, brilliant book published in 2019 for the record, my 1,000 favorite albums from 1957 to 2017. Brian, thanks so much for being on the albumreview.net podcast with us today. Thanks for having me, Greg. I'm excited to be here. You told me in a previous conversation, Brian, your first book was really written for you, uh, but your most recent book, Time Decorated, A History of Popular Music in 12 Playlists, as its title, you said was written for your readers and your fans. I guess, what inspired you to write this? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I think the, the second book takes a slightly more academic approach, whereas for the record, it really was just documenting one of my life's obsessions, which is ranking albums, right? I, I, the way I process art sometimes is by comparing it to other art. And I listen to an album and I think, all right, this is 
this is my favorite Blur album, right? I like it better than the, the last ones and the ones to come. Uh, but how does it compare to my favorite Oasis album, my favorite Radiohead album? This is kind of how I experience the world. And for decades now, I've always had a list of my favorite albums. Um, I wanted to kind of move away from, from the perfectionism that comes with that and the tinkering. And every time I listen to an album again, going back and saying, well, I don't know, where does, where does this fall now? Uh, and, and toward a place where I could say, look, this, this is it. This is what I did. You know, I spent 20 something years, maybe listening to music really obsessively. Um, and here are my thousand favorites and just kind of like put it in ink and call it done. Um, <laughs> the fact that a few people yourself included seem to have enjoyed it and got some pleasure out of it makes me feel great. I did. Um, but it was very much done for myself, uh, with time decorated. I thought, the song more so than the album is is a, a popular, uh, digestible, um, just brief, uh, easy, easy to love uh, vehicle. Uh, whereas an album takes a little more time, a little more commitment. Uh, and so, in writing about songs, rather than just saying, "All right, these are my favorite songs," which may be interesting to to a select few, but probably not to everyone, I wanted to talk more about how I relate to music, how I see others relating to music. And I, a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Mark McAllister, who's a neurologist, agreed to, to be my editor. Um, he's also a music obsessive the way I am, and he's a great writer. So I, I wasn't seeking a neurologist. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed getting some insights uh, into some basic neurology, into understanding uh, how, so, how, the, how the brain interacts with music and how people experience music into to writing about that. What did you learn, Brian, while, while writing this book? That's a good question. One thing I learned, I think, is with the move from a long-term exploration of albums to this study of great songs, I had the opportunity to start exploring artists' catalogs outside their peak years. And as a fellow album connoisseur, you might also tend to focus your efforts on peaks. So early 70s, Neil Young, late 80s, Sonic Youth, mid 90s, Blur, those years where they were consistently delivering great albums. This project kind of pushed me outside those boundaries because while an artist might not be consistently making great music earlier or later in their career than during their peak, sometimes they still have the ability to come up with a really awesome song. And one, one example of this uh, is David Bowie, whom I always thought of as a 70s artist. Uh, sure. I, I knew for a while that my wife was into 80s Bowie, uh, but I'd never really given his work from that period a chance. And of course, I'd heard the song Modern Love. I can't tell you how, how old I was or how long ago it was, but I had no idea that was a Bowie song because it didn't sound like anything I knew from the Ziggy Stardust era or the Berlin era. Right. And I remember just maybe three or four years ago, seeing the Modern Love video at a bar, learning that that was David Bowie and thinking, man, he fell hard into that 80s aesthetic. <laughs> right. uh, I kind of laughed it off at the time, but I listened to that song a bunch of times for this project. And I just gave it a chance. It became one of my favorites. I mean, I think it's one of my favorite 200 songs in the book. And, and from a, a guy who wrote Life on Mars and Station to Station and a bunch of really classic songs. It surprised me some that I ended up choosing an 80s song. You know, I, I did the same for Paul Simon, the same for Tom Waits. I mean, some of these guys that you you think of uh, kind of pigeonholed into a certain era. Right. I, I just said, let's let's listen to everything, you know, or at least everything that that uh, enough critics love or they kind of shows up on the top of the Spotify playlist right. uh, that, that it found its way to me and, and, and give it all a chance. And maybe I'd find something new outside of the peak. And it happened a lot. 
So it kind of, you know, uh, rekindled maybe your your old love for certain certain kinds of music or other songs. But in many ways, you're saying that it sort of taught you a little bit more about some songs that maybe you hadn't paid too much attention to earlier on. And now your own writing and your own research uh, made you fall in love with a bunch of maybe new songs. I think so. And that, that goes both ways in terms of introducing me to new artists that I never would have listened to, but then also digging deeper into the artists I already knew. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Hey, I mean, that's, I think, what everybody can get out of this book is, you know, you you go through and immediately your eyes scroll to some of the things that you already know. And I think a lot of people like an album review, they read some of the reviews that they already know. But the whole point of this is, I think, in my personal opinion, and what helped me was to go in and look at some things that maybe they haven't heard before, or they were, uh, you know, hey, I heard that 20 years ago, but let me go back and listen again. And then they sort of fall back in love with it again. So that's great. And kind of to piggyback off that question, I guess, was there anything that surprised you the most or, and you might've already sort of indirectly answered this, but was, was there a learning that, you know, that you experienced that kind of shocked you? I don't think I learned anything about myself that was shocking or about the ways that I experienced music. I think, again, the, I think I've always approached music with a reasonably open mind. Uh, This was an opportunity to open not just my mind, but the, the canon, right? right? To explore right. more, to, to dig uh, deeper into both, into the catalogs of artists I know and love, uh, and also into um, other, other artists, other musicians, even other genres. One, one thing I decided early on with the help of some, some friends who advised me on this book was that the list would not be my 1,000 favorite songs, which probably would come from four or five, 600 different artists. This was gonna be a thousand songs by a thousand artists. So I had to go outside of my comfort zone. I had to listen both to very popular, uh, the bangles are in here, right? To, to right. music that's been on the radio that I've never really decided to give any additional effort to what I, what I hear on the radio. And then also to um, music from other genres, music from other countries. Um, things that I, I hadn't explored before. I had to find that thousandth artist, which turned out to be really easy. I mean, I, I, I had uh, maybe 18 or 1900 songs that I very seriously considered and had a hard time making cuts. How long did it take you? I mean, to, uh, you know, for, I guess, starting f- with for the record, approximately how long did it mm-hmm. take you to write that? Well, if I'm starting at the beginning of for the record, I think for the record took me 20 years. I just didn't know that. <laughs> right. You were living it. 18 and a half. Um, from the time I finished for the record, uh, which I, as you mentioned earlier, I published in uh, early 2019, I did not immediately decide to write another book. It probably took several months. Um, and then I, I really, when I decided in probably the end of 19 or early 2020 to, to write a book about songs, it was that, that whole year that I really spent putting the list together, determining what the thousand songs would be. Right. Uh, I, I didn't write any, any prose uh, probably until close to the end of the year. I uh, spent a couple of months at the end of the year writing all the essays. Um, there's an essay about each of the playlists. There's an introduction essay, and then there are also some brief essays about the songs that are at the top of the list. Um, I spent a couple of months writing went back and forth with my editor for a while. And then 
I spent a couple of months formatting too. And that was the, sure. that was the part I don't recommend to others. <laughs> right. Yeah. Word to the wise. Yeah. Um, in, in regards to your, your current book, most recent time decorated, a history of popular music and 12 playlists. I think we can kind of figure out what you meant by the latter part, but time decorated. What did, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? So that's a, a quote I came across by the painter, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Uh, he says that, Art is how we decorate space. Music is how we decorate time. Uh, just appeals to me, this, this concept of filling, you, know, you, you fill your house, you fill your walls with art, with, with things that visually appeal to you. Yeah. You fill your whole life and all the spaces you're in with music and things that appeal to you sonically. Right. Um, I'm, I'm listening to music if I'm at home, if I'm in the car, if I'm at work. I'm sure you're the same way. No matter where you are, you have some, it's probably a different different vehicle that's getting the music into your ears. Uh, but it's, it's a way we decorate our lives. Yeah. It's funny you, you mentioned the painter. That was literally going to be my next question. I was really intrigued by your mission statement. Maybe you might call it. Uh, I think, you you know, on page three, you just said it. You wrote... Jean-Michael, is it Basquiat? Did I, am I pronouncing it correctly? <laughs> I think it's Basquiat, but I was actually going to ask you to check that out. <laughs> I'm willing to re-record. <laughs> no worries, no worries. <laughs> Jean-Michel, Jean if you're out there, we um, we respect you. Um, art is how we decorate space. Music is how we decorate time. I, I just, I love how you you bring that to the to the forefront in page three. The pages ahead will present 1,000 decorations of time with essays woven in to celebrate each of the 12 styles of decoration. I'm, I'm quoting Brian here right now. So this book is a mixture of recommended playlists of songs. Can, can you talk to me a little bit more about that? I know you've touched upon some of it already. Definitely. Um, this was a, a concept that was kind of uh, late arriving. Uh, mm -hmm. I did not intend for this book to be about the playlist so much as I intended for the book to be about the songs. And then as I thought about this, this idea of how we interact with music, what music means to us, I mean, naturally, there's, there's no one answer, right? I mean, you right. probably don't know anyone who only likes one genre of music. Um, I know a few, but I know a few. You do? Okay. <laughs> I, I think, I think that's why you're so interesting is because, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but you know, I, you have so many different genres in here, Brian, so many, and I don't see that as much anymore these days. So I was, that was one of the things that intrigued me among many others to pick up the book, but please, sorry, continue. Uh, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and, and I yeah. think genre is probably a loose proxy for <laughs> right. the, the playlists and the meaning that I try to imbue into each of these playlists. So for instance, you know, I have a playlist called I Want Candy. This is just the simplest, most straightforward, a lot of pop songs. A lot of it is from the, six, the 50s and the 60s. Yeah. Um, these are songs that have immediate sonic appeal that don't take much work. The, you know, the, the brain doesn't have to go, go through any hoops to, to try to map the beats and to try to, um, to familiarize itself with the music such that you hear it again and you know it. It's already right. memorized, right. right? I have a playlist called feel it all over. Uh, this, this is kind of, you know, emo might be the subgenre that you'd assign to this, but it's certainly yep. not 80 or 90 emo songs. These are basically just the songs that raise the hairs on the back of your necks, right? There's a lot of sad songs in here. Um, there's a lot of songs with, with build big crescendos. These are things that, again, could, could apply across various genres, uh, but I think they're, they're united by the way the listener feels in listening to them, right? There's another playlist called right. You Want It Darker. 
Um, and, and these, you know, this, this could all have been death heaven and, and sludge metal, you know, um, <laughs> but it's, it's not, it's all over the board. This is a Supreme song and an REM song. And you want a darker playlist right next, next door to black Sabbath and Metallica. Right. And these are just songs that kind of celebrate the darker side of life, pain and death and anguish. It happens. It doesn't just happen in, in, the, in the darkest music. It happens in pop too. Yeah. Now for, for our listeners who may not know, could you uh, describe what emo is? Or what emo means? Um, yeah, I, I hope I can do this justice. So emo <laughs> was kind of a, a pop rock genre that emerged in the 90s. Sunny Day Real Estate, I think, would be where my mm-hmm. tastes in emo uh, best best met. I think there's a lot of it that did not appeal to me as much, but it, you know, I, I was a teenager at the time, and I think it's it, it plays to, to teen angst and, and longing and yearning and, and all of the those those emotions that are just kind of developing in a teenage brain. I'm glad you brought up teenage angst. I want to talk to you a little bit more about that. So, you know, whenever I talk to anybody, when I inter- whenever I interview anybody that I think is interesting, I want to learn a little bit about them. T- tell me a little bit about yourself, Brian. Where did you grow up? Grew up in upstate New York, Queensbury, New York, kind of in the Lake George and Saratoga area. Uh, born in '80s, so my teen years were the '90s. I think that's. Uh, very important to know as we look at a, a book about my favorite songs. Uh, these songs come from every every decade, uh, but there's a particular. Uh, I think the the songs I chose from the '90s are are meaningful, maybe particular to me, mm-hmm. in a way that a lot of these other songs are a little more universal. These are the songs that have lasted the test of time, or songs that appeal to me, or appeal to others for you know, ways that we've we've discovered them later in life, earlier in life. Where do you live now? I live in Southern Maine, uh, in Cumberland, just outside of Portland, with my wife and two kids. They're 12 and 10. Uh, I've been a Northeasterner my whole life uh, between New York, uh, greater Boston, and Maine. Was music considered an outlet to you as a kid? Meaning, like, did you kind of immerse yourself in music growing up to, I like to use the word, escape? I really didn't. Um, I think music really started to to speak to me in a deeper way in my mid-teens. I went through the classic rock phase that I think a lot of people in my generation uh, went through, listened to a lot of Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd in the 90s. And at the same time, I kind of discovered that there was this subgenre of alternative rock that was really being born and and, and growing with, with the Smashing Pumpkins and Pearl Jam, Slater, Kinney, Elastica, um, that really paid a lot of tribute and paid homage to the classic rock that I was listening to. And I, I didn't really need to go back a couple of decades listening to my parents' music. There was, <laughs> there was good stuff available for me right then. So I think it was when I, when I got there, when I re- reached that point where I realized that great music was being made every day, that it became more of a, an active exploration. It would be years still before I would start putting together a top 25 or 50 albums list at the end of every year. Now that that happened as I started moving away from the more expensive CDs toward Spotify streaming services and, and this this world we're in now where yeah, music is different. available around the clock and you can access practically anything you want for limited price. Yeah, and I want to have another completely separate interview with you about that because that just intrigues me so much um did you ever uh, growing up uh, as a kid or a teenager did you ever learn how to play a musical instrument or did you ever have an interest in it not really 
No. Um, I'm the consumer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a maker. Nothing wrong with that. Record companies love you for sure. Um, what I, was I think your... I wrote in the, the back of, uh, for the record, that I taught myself how to play the flute solo to California Dreamin' on a recorder <laughs> once about 15 years ago. And that that's, that's the pinnacle of my performing career. I think I did that in my parents' house. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you alluded to it a little bit earlier as well, but what was your family life like growing up in upstate New York? Uh, I have two sisters. Uh, I'm the middle child. I don't know if there's any connection between being a middle child and, and the obsession with which I pursue things like music. Did, did your uh, older sister, did she influence your musical taste? Not directly. Um, and, and certainly maybe not in the way that she would have wanted. Uh, I, I've probably come around now to listen to more of the music she listened to. Mm-hmm. We're five years apart, uh, between four and five years apart. And that's really meaningful in that specific time because she's more a child of the 80s and I'm more a child of the 90s. Right. And as a child of the 90s, you know, I think Nirvana coming along and just kind of shattering yeah. the, the concept of hair bands and the, yep. the, the, what passed for rock and roll in the, in the especially the late eighties uh, was really meaningful. And I, I liked the kind of apathy driven rock of the nineties over the, the more emotive rock of the eighties. So, you know, it, you, it's, it's funny. I'm, I'm taking a little sidestep here, but you, you, you brought up something that I think a lot of people in, in who, listen to music or know music a little bit uh, are aware of that, you know, you said Nirvana really shattered the hair metal. Um, I totally agree with you. I, I, um, I was talking to somebody a couple months ago and had the luxury of, or the opportunity to record a podcast interview with him as well. But one of the things that we were talking about was that we feel like, or we were saying that Nirvana really kind of was the, the final uppercut punch but that it was, uh, and I'm interested to see if you agree or disagree, and there's no right or wrong answer, but we both agreed that it was Guns N' Roses, despite the fact that they were really kind of lumped in based on look with a lot of the hair metal scene, that when they came out that their music was a little bit different, a little bit heavier, that that is kind of what started the downward spiral of your poisons, your warrants, your trickster your your rat um and uh, and then nirvana came stripped off all the leather and stripped down the songs and that was really the uppercut punch i don't know if you agree or disagree with that or what your thoughts might be i've, I've heard that theory before and i'd say there's there's definitely some legitimacy to it um i think guns and roses was not exactly the the model hair metal band even if they were a metal band with long hair right um I would take it back a year or two more Sonic Youth, the Meat Puppets, um, even Husker Du. Like, I yeah. think there was, there's, there's always a counterculture, right? There's always something happening kind of underground that's reacting to what's happening in the mainstream at the same time. Right. Um, I think what happened with Guns N' Roses is they were re- like a little bit conformist and a little bit rebellious, right. conformist enough to be popular. And so that rebellion took hold. The rebellion moved forward and they changed, they changed the you know, industry is the right word, right word, but they influenced trends, right? Then Nirvana did the same thing. Like Nirvana loved the underground, right? The right. Vaselines and the meat puppets influenced Nirvana. Nirvana also had to conform to something, 
right? right. <laughs> in order for you and I to be having this conversation, we never would have heard of Nirvana. Right. If Nirvana didn't have a little bit of pop sensibility in there that probably drove Kurt Cobain to his end. Yeah. But um, there, there's, there's, there's real underground music that nobody's ever going to hear. Yeah. And then there's the underground music that borrows enough from what's popular that it can be popular and it reaches a lot of ears. And that's how, that's how change happens and trends emerge, right? You, you, you bring it up underground music. I mean, for you listeners out there, if you can't hear already Brian's deep knowledge of this, I mean, we're not just talking about baseline bands that were in the, the, the pop scene all the time. I mean, you're pulling out Sonic Youth, you're pulling out Husker Du. This was an opportunity for me to dive into music that I had never even heard before, whether it be like I'd heard of the band, but never heard of the album or just never even heard of the band whatsoever. So, um, you know, this is my reasoning for telling all of you guys out there why you should pick up Brian's book, because it's going to turn you on to new stuff. And this guy clearly has a wider depth of knowledge of all genres. So we're not just talking rock here. So what, this is somewhat of a general question, but I really like to add this into my repertoire. What inspires you? What drives you? I, I think it's just the further search. Like I told you that when I, when I finished writing for the record, I wanted to say, okay, I'm done ranking albums. I'm going to experience albums the way normal people do now. Right. And I did, you know, I, I, immediately started, you know, turning over new, new albums. You know, I listened to ESG for the first time right after I, I published that book. And I was like, come away with ESG should probably have been in my top 400 albums. And like, <laughs> how do you, how do you write a book and call it permanent call it the end when there's just everything. It's not just the stuff that hasn't been recorded yet. It's all the things that you've missed. Right. And then I wrote this, this book about songs, which I mean, what 12 songs on an app on an album on average you've got a lot of songs that never showed up on an album i've got a lot of artists that i i didn't bother listening to for albums i mean all of a sudden this world has blown up like a hundredfold um and i you know finished and i'm you can't see the finger quotes i'm, I'm putting up for for finished i published a book but i'm never going to finish uh ranking my top thousand songs and what did I do? I went right back into albums. I went right back into this deep dive. I started looking at the 90s again. I said, you know, I keep hearing of all these albums from the 90s, from these polls, from Twitter accounts that I follow. Right. Uh, I didn't hear all these albums. And so in the last six months, probably maybe less than that, maybe five or six months, um, I've probably dug up another three or 400 albums from the 90s that I had never listened to before. And so I think I'm inspired just by the ability, the world that we live in, the age that we live in, when all this music is available. Right. And the the time, it's not like I have more free time on my hands than the average person. I'm a busy person, but I commit to music in a way that if I'm at work, you know, unless I'm in a specific meeting where I can't be listening to something, I'm listening to something. If I'm driving to and from work, I'm listening to something. If I'm home with the kids, I'm listening to something. Uh, I put in that time to explore everything, everyone deeper into every artist canon genres I, I I don't know about. And I think I'm, I'm inspired by knowing that like I, I can listen to and kind of collect all this data, all this music and share it. And I'm going to, when I share it, I'm going to have a conversation with somebody like you who is going to turn me on to something I've never heard of. And we're going to do that for each other, even though both of us probably feel like we listen to everything. <laughs> right, right. No, that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of collaboration, especially in this capacity. So, um, you know, you uh, going back, you, you mentioned Time Decorated was written for your readers and your fans. 
is there anything that you're, you know, looking to, to get from this book? Uh, having fans would be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I got a couple of Twitter followers. <laughs> I sold a couple of books. <laughs> what can your, what can your readers, you know, in short, uh, get out of this book, you think? Yeah, well, I, I would love to think, so all, all 12 playlists in the book are actual playlists on Spotify. And so anyone can, can look me up, Brian O'Connor with a Y on Spotify, and can find these 12 playlists. Love it when these playlists get a follow. I love to see people engaging with this music. And I love to hear, like, let, let's continue this dialogue, right? And, right. and I know right. that we're, we're in an era where dialogue, you know, different, different media are so interactive. And a book is so, can be so insular, right? You're, you read it typically alone and you experience it by yourself. I hope that this still springs dialogue in person on social media. I'd like to hear from people who read this book and found 50, 80, I don't know, 750 songs that they've never heard before. And they went and, and explored them. Like, what was, what was a song that you really liked that you didn't expect to or didn't know about? I also love to hear arguments. I'd love to hear somebody say like, wow, number, number 645, I have the book out right now, The Slider by T-Rex. I listened to that and it was awful. What do you think? <laughs> right, right, uh, right. Because we do, we, we all experience things differently. And that's everybody's, everybody's uh, music tastes are valid. Totally. That's the same thing I put out on my site as well. And in all my podcasts is if you think that this album is horrible, I want to hear from you. I, you know, because maybe you might say, this is an even better album, Greg, and, and, and this band influenced that band. And a lot of times, you know, it might be something I was telling a lot of my listeners and readers that, you know, as much as I feel like I know music, it's only been about a year since I discovered uh, John Prine and I was never deeply into country music, but I discovered him this past winter and I just had a chance to go to the country music hall of fame and visit there and just see a lot of stuff. And I was blown away by his music and I, I won't uh, go too into depth about him, but just how many of the musicians that I grew up liking loved him. And I would go back to other articles or interviews from 20 years ago and people mentioning his name and it just, you know, so I was a little embarrassed. I'm like, how could I've never heard of this guy? So, <laughs> um, did writing this, the, the, the book time decorated, um, did it make you like any of these playlists any less? <laughs> like you got sick of them after a while? I don't think so. Um, the, when I wrote it, I took a little jab at the I Want Candy playlist. Uh, <laughs> I actually have this, I have I this in front of me. And when I wrote that music likened to candy is often maligned by fans and critics, everyone loves a treat, but many listeners are inclined to postpone the sugar until they've sampled the appetizers and entrees and playlists ahead. It's, it's a little bit of a jab at just kind of the simplicity of this music. And I don't remember exactly what the language was, but my first cut of that was far harsher. Um, and my editor is like, whoa, you just, these are a hundred songs that you're saying are some of the thousand best songs ever. And you're going to take the whole thing <laughs> just right off and dismiss this genre. Um, I've actually, some of these songs, especially the beginning of this playlist, Shaboom by the Chords, Can, mm -hmm. Can We Be Sweethearts by the Cleftones. I could listen to those songs 15 times a day, every day for a couple of months and not get sick of them. Some of this music is so perfect. I do think taken as a whole if i only listen to that playlist i think it would be a little grating i think i would need a little more i need a little more variety do you have you ever been in a situation where someone tells you that they really love a band that you love like for instance let's say 
um, Pink Floyd or the who let's say Pink Floyd. And they say, yeah, I love Pink Floyd. I'm like the biggest Pink Floyd fan ever. And then you say, Oh, what, what kind of, what, you know, what, what are some of your favorite albums or what are some of your favorite tunes? Wish you were here. Do, do you ever, you know, think to yourself, yeah, wish you were here is great. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm just using one example, but you know, there's so much more. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm guessing you're not as much of a, a snob as I am, <laughs> but um, do, do you ever, I guess, get to a point where you're like, yeah, uh, won't get fooled again is great. Uh, uh, I want to rock and roll all night is great. Uh, Sweet child of mine is great, but I've just, I find myself, you know, I've heard it so many times that I, I want something new. I'm craving something new. I guess that was more what I was after when I was asking that question about, you know, the 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 playlists and kind of getting maybe sick of them. This this may come as a surprise, uh, given the way that you've described me and I've described myself here as kind of a crate digger and somebody who likes to do that deep dive. I think my musical tastes are somewhat basic. <laughs> Um, I, if you ask me my favorite Pink Floyd song, Wish You Were Here would be in the conversation. If you ask my favorite <laughs> Who's song, Won't Get Fooled Again would be in the conversation. I've heard <laughs> They're those great songs, songs. They're great songs. A thousand, song, a thousand times each. Sure. Um, a, a good song holds up, holds up to that. Yeah. Right? And I, I, I've never been a fan of the overplayed argument. I think you know, overplayed is on you. Right. I, I'm not really a radio guy. I decide what I listen to. So if anything's overplayed, that's my fault. And I, I overplayed it. For, for a reason, because it was really great, right? Um, and so I, I like to think that that's a strength. Um, the, my willingness to, um, to accept those songs that are kind of canon, that, that are widely accepted as the best, and just share that uh, in part because if this book were a thousand deep cuts, and somebody picked it up and they'd only heard of seven of them, they don't know me, they don't know my tastes, and they're not inclined to listen to anything That's else a great that I'm point. to put in front That's of them. That's a great so point. So as soon yeah. as I say that Wish You Were Here is my favorite Pink Floyd song, and I honestly can't even tell you what my Pink Floyd song <laughs> is off the top of my head. Um, although I do have a playlist called Careful With That Axe, Eugene. Um, I saw that, I, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm that. giving you something that you can relate to because... I'm hoping everybody out there has heard Wish You Were Here, right? Right. And so hopefully that makes you want to dive into the book and listen to some of those songs that you haven't heard. Yeah, yeah. There's probably several people out there right now listening to this that know me that are saying, take that, Greg. Um, it's great to hear that answer. And, and you know, going back to your mention of your I Want Candy playlist, this stuck out to me. Just to give the listeners a taste, um, I, I noticed on that list were songs, um, Here's Where the Story Ends by The Sundays, Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears, California Dreamin' by The Mamas and the Papas, and then Billy Joel's Only the Good Die Young. I saw that, Brian, and I was like, oh my God! I stopped reading the book, grabbed my phone, threw those songs on, and, and I thought to myself, and again, this is my perception, right? So this is this is the point. This is what I'm getting out of his book. I already know these songs, but I'm going back now and I'm reliving these songs again. And I honestly hadn't heard Here's Where the Story Ends in, what did it come out in, 1994 or 93? I mean, and this just brought me back. Every Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I mean, it, California Dreaming from the, you know, from the, the late 60s, early 70s. 
um, you know, some of the, the mamas and the papas started a lot of the, the folk music that kind of came out of LA and Laurel Canyon in that time. So, uh, you know, I mean, these are just amazing compilations and it made me, like I said, I dropped your book. I picked it back up um, afterwards, but drop your book and just immediately go listen to these. So um, I, I just, I had to share that with the listeners. And I guess, is there anything you could share about what inspired you to kind of include those songs as well? Yeah, I'll, uh, I've got a couple of anecdotes about those. So one, California Dream is just unassailable to me. Um, I'm not a huge Mamas and the Papas fan. I, I don't throw on a Mamas and the Papas album uh, too often. <laughs> when you're working I've, out? I've, What's that? When you're working out. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, I, I have heard a few other albums and, and got a few other good songs, but like when a song has permeated pop culture the way California Dreaming is, that's not by mistake. And if you're sick of it, again, I'm going to say it, that's on you. That's <laughs> Billy Joel, I agonized over Billy Joel. I'm not a huge Billy Joel fan. I also recognize that there are 10 and 12 Billy Joel songs that you can put on anywhere in America and probably the whole Western world. And you're going to have everybody there singing along. And I think right. for that and other reasons, Billy Joel is often maligned. And I can remember being stuck on the one Billy Joel song that I was going to include in this book. And while again, this was not going to be a top hundred song, he was definitely something was going to be worthy of the top thousand. And I remember a road trip with my family and I was like, you know what? I need, I need your help right now. We're going to listen to piano, man. We're going to listen to scenes from an Italian restaurant. We're going to listen to <laughs> only a good day. The good day young. We're going to do it a couple of times actually. <laughs> and I listened to all of them. And, and actually um, I, I probably was inclined to go with scenes from an Italian restaurant, which I, I think is a little more memorable to me because I remember when I first heard scenes from an Italian restaurant and yep. it was after I had bought that album, yeah. as opposed to Piano Man, which you hear in the grocery store, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, and in right. every bar, right. Um, and so it had a specific meaning to me. Um, but the kids loved only the good die young. I, I don't remember exactly what my wife's take was, but um, I I went with it, and I never looked back. And I don't know if I made the right decision, but that's that's the one. I'm glad to hear that you liked it. <laughs> Loved it. Uh, going back to your your first book in 2019, for the record, my 1,000 favorite albums from 1957 to 2017. This was strictly your list or your you know group of lists. You wrote this for you, which again I got up for the 20th time. I got to commend you for. I got to talk to you about your top five. Tell me briefly about your top five. So number five, you had "Good Kid, Mad City" uh, by Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. Um just just an incredible document i mean kendrick lamar is a pulitzer prize winning writer um he it, this one took me a while uh mm -hmm. i listened to it for the first time in 2012 and i was like all right this is pretty cool i can see what he's doing here like there's some some very direct tributes to dr dre who um is you know kind of a, a colleague and collaborator right of kendrick's um, but then he's, he's an incredible storyteller and he finds really creative ways to tell stories. And I think at the end of 2012, I had that like in my top 15 albums of the year. And by 2017, I was like, no, this is the best hip hop album ever. Um, <laughs> and I, I remember actually when I, when I started to think about that, that possibly being the case, I was like, okay, if I'm going to say this, we are. 
35 or 40 years into this genre. And I'm going to say that an album from 2012 was the best one. I better back it up. And I spent a long drive. I spent a drive, I think, to and from Bangor for work, uh, listening to Eric B. and Rakim's uh, Paid in Full, listening to Outcast, probably both Aquam and I, and Stankonia, listening to The Chronic. Um, and then I listened to both uh, Good Kid, Mad City and To Pimp a Butterfly. And I was just like, this, this is... This is a whole other level of sound right uh, of songwriting, of production. Uh, it's just it's just music, musicianship in a way that that I didn't hear even an Outcast, which like I've been an Outcast fan since I finally gave hip hop a chance in two thousand yeah. or so. You know, so th- this is something that's really special for the podcast. Where obviously we're talking about in the same podcast, we're talking about Kendrick Lamar, we're talking about Outcast, and we're talking you know careful with that axe Eugene Pink Floyd in the exact same conversation. So, you know, again, the example of diversity in Brian's taste is just, it's just awesome. Um, okay. Number four, something else, Cannonball Adderley, which came out in 1958. Before I let you answer my, I did another, I stopped. Um, one of my favorite albums of all time is uh, um, Kind of Blue, Miles Davis, which Cannonball played on. I had never heard a Cannonball solo record. And I immediately dove into this one and I was, you know, blown away. So thank you. You turned me on to that, even though I had heard Cannonball before. He played on a few songs on um, Kind of Blue, which uh, was, I believe, 58 or 59. Tell me yeah. about, tell me about, you know, uh, why you chose that. Sure. You know, I think to call something else a solo record is to undersell the group of musicians that recorded on something else. Um, and, and, you know, it's hard to talk about this album without talking about Miles Davis. It's hard to talk about jazz without talking about Miles Davis. And Miles from the, the 40s to, to even into the 80s um, was the gold standard. I mean, he was always pushing jazz forward, always. I mean, even he, he influenced rock in the late 60s um, with Bitches Brew in a Silent Way, tribute to Jack Johnson. Um, it, it's hard to say that the best jazz album is not a Miles Davis album, but I could flip that and say my favorite Miles Davis album is Cannonball Adderley, something else. <laughs> Every trumpet you hear on uh, something else is Miles Davis, right? It's, it's Hank Jones on piano. It's Sam Jones on bass. And Art Blakey, sorry, Art Blakey uh, on drums is, is another of my favorites. And Art Blakey shows up uh, several times uh, in my top thousand albums. Something else is... It's, it's perfect pop jazz. Like, it's very accessible. I, I, you don't have to be a jazz fan. I would agree. Uh, you don't have to know the five musicians that are playing. You, you pick that up, and you're just grooving from the first track to the end. Yeah, yeah. Just an amazing pick. And, you know. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow up a little bit and, and kind of bridge these two, these two books. Um, yeah. Love for Sale uh, is my favorite track on uh, something else, and you may wonder why Love for Sale didn't make it into the into Time Decorated. Yeah. I actually d- chose to define a song as something sung. So you actually will find nothing in Time Decorated that doesn't have any lyrics. Uh, the closest I came was The Champ's Tequila, which is song number 1000, uh, which has three words, each of which is, of course, tequila. <laughs> um, but I, I decided that that was going to be true to the definition of song as opposed to using pieces or tracks or whatever, and including a lot of instrumentals, which would have brought a lot of jazz into the into this book. Okay, number three, Highway 61 Revisited, Bob Dylan. So again, before I let you answer, um, 
I'm a I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. He influenced me tremendously, especially Blood on the Tracks. I think this album was even more uh, influential just on music itself. Um, but I also feel like these days, Bob Dylan, there's this either you love him or you hate him and there's nobody in the middle. What made you pick this one? Or why is this your number three? Because I made the bold decision to say two albums are better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think Bob Dylan, I, nobody invented rock and roll. It happened rather organically over decades. Um, and there were a lot of important um, musicians in terms of rock's birth that, that came before Dylan. Um, I think what he did in kind of bringing that, not just folk, but almost like the punk folk sensibility, that just righteous indignation right. uh, to to songs that wanted to be a little bit harder than than folk song than the folk songs that Bob Dylan grew up listening to. I think he heard the beginning of rock and roll and said, well, okay, yeah. I mean, and I'm not I'm not quoting Bob Dylan, I'm projecting pretty heavily here, but Chuck Berry's got this great sound, Little Richard's got this great sound that moves you, but what are they singing about, right? Right. Bop bop a loo bop. He Bob Dylan was singing about something. To, to marry that, to marry that purpose of lyricism to the, the uh, intensity of rock and roll. Uh, I think he, his, all of his early to mid sixties records are just absolute critical documents in the history of rock and in the history of popular music. And highway 61 is, is right at the center of that. I mean, like, like a rolling stone, it's just this famous diss track that, you know, would be, uh, Pretty popular, I think, if it came out today, it would sound a little different. Um, right to Desolation Row, which is just, I mean, the guy could keep your attention <laughs> for longer than anybody can today. You hear that, everybody? Straight from Brian's mouth. I couldn't agree more. You could even take away his acoustic guitar, or his band, and just read his lyrics. Um, okay, number two, um, which I've seen up high before as well, Blue by Joni Mitchell. And this is a this is a classic. I know this was all over Rolling Stone, but um, tell me a little bit more about this. I would have to say, out of the the five, this was the one that I was least familiar with. I mean, I'm aware of it, but I was least familiar with you know just as far as listening to all the songs. Yeah, sure. I mean, the early '70s were were kind of known for their these singer songwriter, this kind of testimonial music, and right. you can kind of hear Joni Mitchell's journey. Uh, you can kind of see her her life kind of unfold before your eyes. She's got this incredible vocal range. I also think she's just a great arranger and a great producer. And I think um, her, her lyrics, which are brilliant, get a lot of credit. Um, her voice gets both a lot of credit. And uh, I think it's a, it's a bit much for people. I think, you know, I don't know exactly how many octaves are in that range, but <laughs> only so many octaves are going to appeal to the average voice. She, she stretches her voice in really moving ways. When I first shared this, the idea of the book with uh, a friend who's, we were, we were at our son's soccer game and he said, all right, tell me about your, your, your favorite albums. And I, I told him my, my first three, and he's like, oh, you're a lyrics guy. I was like, actually, I'm, I'm really not. I would not describe myself that way. I'm, I'm moved much more by music than by what's said. I do think both in terms of Highway 61 and in terms of Blue, these are just perfect marriages of 
someone who has a lot to say, who has experienced a lot, is willing to just lay themselves bare in front of a, an unlimited audience, uh, but also really incredible arrangers. I mean, neither one of them is a guitar virtuoso, right? But right, totally. they're surrounded by great musicians. They arrange music well, they produce music well. I think both of those albums are just perfect rock albums. And that's what's so unique about those two is they never were incredible. You know, they never were your Jimi Hendrix or your Robert Plant or your Jimmy Page or, but they just did so much with their music. So I, I couldn't agree with you more with those, with that, that description, Brian. Um, okay. So your number one, which it made me smile. It's uh, it's definitely up there with one of my favorites. It definitely is my favorite by this band. I had the luxury of taking my son to his very first concert and he's now 11, but I believe he was eight or nine. When he's in his 50s and 60s, he's going to be telling his kids, hopefully, listen to how cool my dad was. So Brian put, well, why don't you tell everybody, Brian, what was your, you know, what, what was your, uh, your number one in this? Yeah, uh, so my favorite, I told you my, my tastes are basic. And my favorite album of all time is the best album of all time. <laughs> <It's Radiohead. laughs> 1997. Yeah, I was 17. So yeah, I experienced it differently than I did all four of the, the prior albums we just talked about, three of which were released well before I was born and the last one when I was in my 30s. Um, OK Computer is prescient. Um, it is dynamic. It doesn't sound like anything that ever came before it. When they say that that bands predict the future, like it's that's a self-fulfilling prophecy right they they had a sound that a lot of other bands emulated so it's less a prediction right and more of just they put a stake in the ground and everybody kind of picked it up from there what's amazing about okay computer is these these themes of the pace of change of technology of isolation of the way that the same media the same technology that brings people together is also pulling people apart um, is also kind of driving, I think, a lot of the, the political polarization we see in America right now. You know, it's, it's political, but it's also public health crisis that, that, um, that our, our polarization is, um, is perpetuating, really. I mean, I don't think it needs to be where it is right now. We're talking in the middle of August and we're all putting our masks back on in the hospital right. ICU full again. Uh, Radiohead saw all of this, and they saw it before anybody else did. Almost 30 and years ago. Again, we can talk about the lyrics and how how prescient they were and how they they saw things, but the the feeling that they put behind those lyrics with your traditional guitar, drums, and bass, but also with Johnny Greenwood just like tinkering with radio dials, with the fuzz and static, and all of these kind of electronic sounds that were nothing like what we knew as electronica in the nineties at right, the time. Right. right. Um, they were, they were accents. They were a band first who, who wasn't going to settle for the, the guitar drum bass formula, as opposed to they were a, you know, a DJ that was you know, at the switches and using somebody else's borrowed sounds, guitar and, and, and drum and bass. Um, they weren't the first to do that and they weren't the last, but they're certainly the best. Well said. I want to bounce around a little bit here, but I jotted down some things that, you know, I was thinking about uh, when I was reading both of your books. Um, for Time Decorated, I absolutely 
love the opening page. And I want to quote you because these lines were so good. Quote, I remember the opening guitar riff of Jimi Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower exploding from his speakers. Brian's talking about a, a friend of his that he was at a high school party with. Beckoning life after high school. Freedom and opportunity busted through those amps. Independence and spontaneity bounced around the yard. With that stereo thump, excuse me, without that stereo thump, my brain would rarely, if ever, summon that memory. Such is the power of music. Just brilliant. You couldn't have said it any better. I wanted to ask you if I can put that on my tombstone. <laughs> Do I get quoted? <laughs> Absolutely. I will make sure that it gets put down at the bottom. Um, I, I think I'm going to let you comment in a minute, but I, I think so many of us remember where we were when we heard certain songs, when we heard certain albums. I know where the hell I was when I first heard that. And to read that on your first page, it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up in a, in a good way. Gave me kind of gave me some goosebumps. So that's a, that's a really cool story, I guess. In short, could, could you talk a little bit about that and then maybe share, uh, and if you don't have one, that's okay. Uh, but maybe share another quick example of some, something else that was, you know, as, as memorable as that or close to it. I'm glad to hear that resonates with you. I think, as I said before, this this is the book that's for you and not for me. And, and the hope in including anecdotes like this is, is to say that, you know, it, it doesn't matter what my favorite music is, right? No, nobody else really needs to know what my favorite music is. But when I can kind of bring what music means, the way I experience music, and, and you can, can hear that and it resonates so deeply with you, particularly about that same song, um, Again, I think it establishes this baseline, right? You read that and you say, let's hear the other 999 songs <laughs> and those, those experiences maybe that we, that we had about those 999. I mean, to be honest, probably 975 of these, the first time I heard them because I chose to listen to that album because I'd heard something good about them or I already liked the band or whatever. So I, I can't, and, and, and frankly, that probably wasn't the first time I'd heard All Along the Watchtower either. That was just the, the most memorable time I heard sure. All Along the Watchtower. So the second part of your question, you asked for another song that I uh, relate to in the same way or remember the first time I heard it. And, and I'm going to give you uh, Prayer to God by Shellac. This is from 2000. I don't know if you've, you've heard it yet. I haven't. I picked no. this one up because uh, Pitchfork released a, a book called the Pitchfork 500. And it was had some similar themes to this and it definitely influenced this book. It was about the 500 songs in the pitchfork era, which is really from the mid seventies to, to right. when the book was written in the early two thousands um, that kind of were important in moving music kind of away from the mainstream, kind of developing alternative and underground music. And, and one of them was prayer to God. I said, okay, I've, I've never heard shellac. I have no idea what I'm going to get into. And I, I suppose these are private airwaves, so maybe I could share some of the lyrics with you, but I definitely would not be able to over public airwaves. So maybe I'll I'll stay classy for the kids and and, and not share any of the lyrics to this one. Uh, but I definitely urge listeners to check out Prayer to God. It is incredibly dark, but it is incredibly funny at the same time. It's just this deep, deep despair. And the the singer and i presume this is not autobiographical but um catching a lover uh with someone else 
and praying to God for their murder. A very different type of murder for his lover <laughs> and her new lover. Um, but yeah, I remember uh, probably putting that into a Spotify queue and listening to, listening to it in the car on my way to work the next day and being like, yes, yes. <laughs> This is the type of song I like to listen to. I told you I'm not a lyrics guy, but when when you can put something so uh, so creative and so out there forward in a genre like metal, um, it's just that that screams my name. <laughs> it's a call to action for me. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and thank you for keeping it clean. I don't know if you knew, but some recent uh, data came back that the majority, 90% actually, my listeners are between the ages of three and five years old. So thank you very much for keeping that. Uh, <laughs> um, I, 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 as I was saying earlier, and I wanted to reiterate again, in case people are coming into this interview a little bit later, um, I, I read your books to get turned on to newer music or music I hadn't heard before. I tend to, me personally, when I see a bunch of album reviews, yeah, it's interesting to read what somebody else thinks about something. A lot of times I go to something I'd never heard of before. Rather than listen or read you know, reviews on albums or songs that I know, I went through page by page hunting for songs, album that I either hadn't heard of or never heard of such as, um, I had to bring this one up, Good Morning Captain by the band Slint from 1991. I had never heard of this band and it intrigued me because, Brian, you wrote Kentucky's Answer to Can. Slint made music by no one's rules but their own. Just two albums into a mysterious career, this dark, spacious meditation was the group's last record. That hung in the air for me after I read that and I was like... I have to find this right now. I have to listen to this right now. And I did the same thing. I found myself dropping the book again and going to listen to it. And by gosh, was it mysterious and was it dark? But I found myself after a minute or two, not being able to take my ear, my earbuds out. So um, I just, I wanted to make that you know, I wanted to make that side comment because I think for those people listening, those are the other things I think you can get out of this book as well. I mean, there's so many, there's so many more amazing gems in this book. And, and as I mentioned before, Brian's vast range of genre here, it's not just rock, it's not just jazz, it's not just hip hop. Uh, I like to say it's a curious amalgam. Okay, in the introduction, Brian, you write for the first, uh, sorry, the first time you heard your favorite song, did it immediately become your favorite song? I wanted to talk about that statement for a minute. If we think back to what our favorite song or, or songs are, Brian, almost every time you, you figure it doesn't become your favorite song immediately upon first listen. So when does it, uh, in your estimation, five listens? 10 listens? Um, obviously, there's no single answer to that. It's all no. over the board. I can tell you that the first time I heard Amy Winehouse's Rehab, it became one of my favorite songs. And that's awesome. it's never left that perch. Uh, but that, again, kind of speaks to the, the candy involved in it, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it grabs you so fast. It's so catchy. Um, I can tell you there are a lot of songs in this book that took me more time. Uh, Bonnie Prince Billy is an artist that I've, I've liked for a long time. He's got a song called Raining and Darling. Uh, it's like less than a minute and a half long, uh, very spare in terms of instrumentation, kind of just pleading and it's from this place of despair. Uh, 
it's no pop song. <laughs> if, you, if you throw it on right now, I don't think you're going to immediately write me a letter saying, thank you for turning me on to Raining and Darling. But it's the type of song that it ends the album. And I listened to that album over and over again, probably in the first half of the 2010s. Um, and it just grew and grew and grew to the point where I started to recognize it as just this this achievement in songwriting and in, in recording. Uh, it doesn't sound like anything else anybody ever wrote. Everybody's done love songs. A lot of people have done sad songs. Right. Uh, Bonnie Prince Billy does not aim for that same place in your brain that Amy Winehouse aims for. He, he's, I think he's probably playing for himself, right? Amy Winehouse right. is playing for us. Bonnie Prince Billy is playing for himself. And if you're in the right state of mind, to, to hear when you happen to hear Bonnie Prince Billy, um, that that song that he wrote and recorded for himself can become a real a real part of you, and you can have this this real deep intimate relationship with an author. Bonnie Prince Billy, everybody, go check it out. Yeah, I just I had to ask you that because I was fascinated by that thought, and it made me go back and think about my favorite song or my favorite songs. I guess I can narrow them down a little bit. It's hard, just like you said. I agree with you, but and I just was thinking, I was pondering for like a good hour you know when was the first okay i remember the first time i heard it but when was the first time that i was like okay this is my favorite song and it just it leaves a lot open to interpretation there's no black and white right or wrong answer um and maybe you know you think back and you're like was it was it the sixth listen was it you know and who knows but i think it's just fun to fun to think about and i think it gets you you know to if there's anybody out there right now listening who goes, well, who cares about that? I think it, it just, it makes you appreciate music more, you know, Brian, before I kind of uh, close things up, I had a few other items I wanted to touch upon, but is there anything else that, you know, you wanted to add or anything about, you know, your books, which I'm going to talk about uh, or list again in a moment, but anything else that you'd like to add before I kind of start to wrap things up here? Oh, uh, sure. You know, I, I, I recognize that, this is you know, the, the books that I write are a pretty specific niche uh, and, and don't necessarily appeal to everyone. Again, I think specific to albums, I, I've talked to, to people who are like, oh, I don't, I don't know any albums. I'm like, no, you know, any albums. That, this is like every, everything in the world to me is like music package in a specific way. And they're like, oh, no, I just I listen to the radio and I'm on Spotify. I listen to one song at a time. Um, I, I recognize just how niche that first one is. I really think that Time Decorated has the power to appeal to a lot of people pretty broadly. I think this is this is the one that um, somebody who maybe is a music obsessive like you or me picks this up and leaves it at home and somebody in the house who isn't, who's, who's more of a radio person who, and who consumes music a different way, picks it up. And I think this, this is going to be interesting, an interesting read in a way that for the record probably wouldn't be to that person. Um, I'll also note that you know, I, I made a concerted effort uh, with distribution this time around uh, to avoid Amazon. Um, I, you can get for the record on Amazon, though I don't really push that anymore, uh, just given that I think income inequality in this country is a massive crisis. And I think that every purchase we make through Amazon is just contributing to, yeah. to that inequality in, in the economic crisis that we're in. Um, I'm distributing solely through a local music store called Bull Moose. 
Uh, really proud of that partnership. Both books, both books. Sorry to cut you off. Both books now. Both oh, books are available uh, awesome. at, at Bull Moose. Um, there are several stores in Maine and New Hampshire. Um, I know there are several copies of both books in Scarborough, and I know they're also kind of peppered around the other stores. But also, you can buy them online. Okay. Uh, and so I should. Yeah, it is just bullmoose.com. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you again for joining me here today and talking about your journey as a music, you know, a music subject author is what I like to say. I, I truly dig both of your books. And for all the listeners, just like Brian just said, you can pick up his book, Time Decorated, A History of Popular Music in 12 Playlists by going to bullmoose.com, B-U-L-L-M-O-O-S-E.com. And then Time Decorated, uh, I'm sorry, For the Record, uh, my 1,000 favorite albums from 1957 to 2017, also by going to boomoose.com. And then soon I'm going to be having these up in my bookstore and I'll, I'll just, um, I'll link it to the Bull Moose site, but you can also go, if it's easier for people, you can go to the bookstore and albumreview.net. And uh, there's a lot of other books in there as well that I think you guys will enjoy. Um, Brian, before I let you go, uh, we talked about this kind of in our, our, our previous quick, uh, meet and greet conversation that we were going to, uh, leave a cliffhanger at the end of this, uh, interview and pick an album from, uh, what, what I thought we would do is pick an album from your list from for the record and, um, and we'll review it in a future podcast. I, I, I agonized over this for hours and I had like 12 that I wrote down and then one hit me and I thought that's the one. So the album that I'm referring to is going to be Jeff Buckley's Grace. Sounds good to me. <laughs> it's, um, it's been a while since I've obsessed, obsessed over Grace the way I did uh, 20 plus years ago, but I can definitely give it a few spins and, uh, and, and see what, what memories it conjures up. And I'd be happy to talk to you about it. So um, Jeff Buckley's Grace, we're going to talk about, and there were some other uh, honorable mentions, which we can get to at another time. So Brian, thank you again. I really, really appreciate your time. And um, I know we will do this again sometime really soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to talk music with another music nut. And I hope there are a few music nuts out there listening to this. They got something out of it. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you again for listening to the albumreview.net podcast. I really enjoyed having Brian O'Connor on the show today. To pick up a copy of either of Brian's two published books, Time Decorated, A History of Popular Music in 12 Playlists, and For the Record, my 1,000 favorite albums from 1957 to 2017, go to the bookstore at albumreview.net. I'll have both of Brian's links up there for you to check out and purchase. They're really interesting, and I think they will inspire you to jump into some new music. I did. And in order to stay tuned on that review Brian and I agreed to do together on Jeff Buckley's Grace album, you can join the mailing list to stay on top of new releases. Just go to albumreview.net for that. You can also check me out on Instagram at albumreview.net. If you're interested in any of the albums I reviewed in this episode or any other episodes, please go to the website and pick up a copy of your own. Listen to all of my podcast album reviews also at albumreview.net by clicking on the podcast tab. They can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. Okay, guys, lastly, I do want to hear from you. Please email me your feedback, album review requests, or any questions that you might have 
to gpotters at albumreview.net. That's G-P-O-T-T-E-R-S at albumreview.net. Thank you very much. Keep on listening, keep on reading, and keep on learning. Take a trip down by the highway. Take a trip down by the highway. Take a trip down by the highway. Take a trip down.